Are you trying to buy a house and have no idea where to start? Well, guess what? Today's episode is exactly the step-by-step process on how to buy your first home. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. Hello and welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. And before we get started, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in today. I know there's a ton of podcasts out there and I really appreciate and honored that you guys are here listening to me. Before today's show, I want to make sure to announce this important disclaimer. I am a fee-only financial planner and a fiduciary for my clients, but let's be honest, I don't know you or anything about you. This show is for educational purposes only and shouldn't be taken as legal or financial advice. Please consult your attorney, CPA, or your fee-only financial planner before you take any action or make any important financial decisions. Today, we're going to be talking to Mindy Jensen from Bigger Pockets. And if you don't know what Bigger Pockets is, man, are you in for a treat? Bigger Pockets is home to the largest community of real estate investors on the internet. They have over 850,000 members. Uh, I think they just passed over 3 million posts on their forum, and they're adding about 750 members a day. Some ridiculous numbers there. They have dozens of how to guides. I believe they're in the hundreds of podcast episodes and they have some amazing books that they've published all around real estate investing. I own, I think every single book and have definitely read every single book and they are amazing. So if you're interested in real estate, um, I'll definitely be linking them in the show notes, but if you're interested in real estate and learning more about real estate, regardless of what level you're at, beginner to advanced, they have some great content and you should be checking out biggerpockets.com. Today's episode is recorded in the live setting, just like the other three episodes in the podcast launch week. Today, we're talking with Mindy on the floor of Podcast Movement, uh, which is a conference all for podcasters. And we're at the FinCon booth. This won't be the norm, but I think Mindy and I have a great conversation. You're going to learn all about the steps to take to buy your first property. Whether it's a rental property or your first home, we walk through the entire process from finding an agent, what documents you should have, how to look for homes, what's important to look for in a home, and you know all the way to basically you own the home. So before we jump into the interview, here is this week's digestible tip. When you're looking at your retirement savings and your company offers a match in your 401k or your 403b. Make sure you put up into that match. That is just free money. There's no guarantees in life, but your company is literally telling you, if you put money here, we will double it. Do it. Easy money. Once you've put up to the match, then look at funding your traditional IRA or Roth IRA, depending on if you're excluded from contributing to a Roth or not directly based on your income level. But either one, you're going to put in the $5,500 for there and for the year and then go back and start maxing out your 401k. But do not leave free money on the table. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, and I'm sitting on the podcast movement floor at the FinCon booth with Mendy. 
Mindy, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? My name is Mindy Jensen, and I'm the community manager for BiggerPockets.com. We're going to talk to you today about real estate and the process of buying your first home. A lot of clients and prospects that I deal with over at Physician Wealth always have questions around the process and how much home they can afford and how to find an agent and all these great things. So I want to kind of just jump right in and talk about the process of buying your first home. Where should someone start when they decide, hey, we're ready to buy a home? The first thing you should really think about is how long do you want to live in that area? If you're going to be there only a short time, it may not be worth it to buy a house. Really think about, do I want to live here for an extended period of time? After that, you need to know how much mortgage you can afford comfortably. If you're coming out of medical school, you most likely have student loan debt, and you're going to need to pay that back, or you're going to at least need to pay the minimums. We had talked about this earlier. You pay the minimums, and you can get a student loan forgiveness Mm -hmm. for, I'm assuming, being a doctor in a certain area. Yeah, and working Um, for a 501c3 and everything. We deal with that in one of the earlier episodes that I'll link to. When they're looking to buy a house, there's some other perks. There's physician loans, and banks are notorious for giving you way more than you should be using and should be purchasing. And and we'll kind of talk into that. What really should they kind of be looking for with school districts and that kind of stuff? Sure. So after you've determined how much you can comfortably afford based on all of your other bills and all of everything, you still want to have your emergency fund. You Mm -hmm. want to be funding that. I'm sure you're talking about that in earlier episodes. You want to look at where you want to live. There are definitely going to be neighborhoods that you like and definitely going to be neighborhoods you don't like. So as you're driving through town, I'm assuming you're already living there. If you're moving to a new location, you should absolutely rent for the first six months or year until you really know the area because the last thing you want to do is buy a house and then have to sell it when you discover that you hate the neighborhood. And I know this from personal experience. I bought a house and two weeks after we closed on the house, my husband and I looked at each other and said, do you want to move back to where we just came from? Because we hated the neighborhood so much. So that wasn't really something we had paid attention to. We were moving there from out of state. Know your neighborhood. Do you have kids? If you have kids, you should be looking at the school districts. Do you not have kids? You should still be looking at the school districts because a house in a good school district is a lot easier to sell than a house that isn't in a good school district. It's not impossible to sell a house in a bad school district or in a not so good school district, but if you've got two right next to each other and one is clearly better, that's the better place to live in and that's the better place to have your house because people will pay a premium for that should you decide to sell. I am a nomad. I have never lived in the same house for more than five years in my whole life. I always have an eye on the resale. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not going to sell it for 25 years, it still is nice to get into the good school district. A good school district can go bad, but it's very difficult for a bad school district to suddenly become great. Yeah, and that makes total sense. Keeping with the theme of a school district, what do you think about buying the nicest home in a somewhat worse neighborhood of that district or buying the worst home in the nicest side of or in that school district? I would always recommend the latter because you, let's say all the houses in the neighborhood are selling for $400,000 and there's this one that's selling for $300,000. People who are looking to pay are looking in the $300,000 neighborhood and then they find this one in the $400,000 neighborhood and they say, oh, 
I would live there. If you flip it over, if you have a $400,000 house in a $300,000 neighborhood, people who are looking for $400,000 houses are looking in $400,000 neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be more difficult to sell. Again, I'm always looking at the resale of it. So that's going to be more difficult to sell if for some reason you have to sell quickly. Nobody wants to put their house on the market and then hope it takes six months to sell. That's never a, a fun sale. That's never a good thing. And I know you guys over at Bigger Pockets always say you make your money on the purchase. You so, absolutely do. So when you're when you're doing this and you're looking at the worst house in the best neighborhood, it might mean that some money needs to actually be put into it, but that that whole rehab piece of it will actually build equity, potentially multiples of equity, and make them successfully actually have a, a nice home. It's interesting to think. So when someone says, okay, I'm, I'm ready, I've targeted the school district, and I'm ready to, to really start looking in this neighborhood, how do they find an agent? You want to ask for recommendations. I have a sister who went and sold her house. She f- was driving past, it was kind of on a whim, she drove past a sign, she called the woman up, and she said, I want you to sell my house. Well, of course the woman's going to say yes. Thank you. She was not good with first-time sellers, Mm -hmm. and my sister was a first-time seller. My sister also used her to buy her new place, and she wasn't very good with first-time buyers. And my sister had lived in her house for long enough that all the rules have changed, and she really didn't know what she was doing. Never mind that she has a sister who's a licensed real estate agent in the state of Colorado and works at a real estate investing website where we teach people how to invest in real estate and how to buy and sell. Next time, maybe? Yes, yes, next time, maybe. So you want to ask your friends, hey, who did you use as your real estate agent? Do you like them? Would you recommend them? Would you use them again? Mm -hmm. When they say yes, you want to ask a few more, why? Why is it that you like them? What is it that they did? Or if they don't like them, you want to note that too, because you know, I had a roofer who was terrible. I, my neighbor down the street asked me, hey, would you, who's your roofer? Would you recommend him? I said, absolutely not. And here's his name. Don't you dare use him. Mm-hmm. He's not good. So not only getting a good recommendation, but also knowing who to avoid is important. But on the flip side of that sign story, if you're driving through a neighborhood and you notice the same name or the same couple of names over and over and over, they're familiar with that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So they're worth calling and talking to a little bit more. But you definitely want to interview agents and don't just settle on the first person you talk to. Wait until you find somebody who communicates in the manner you want to communicate with, who is nice, who understands what you're looking for, and who isn't going to push you into just buying anything so they get paid. Real estate agents get paid on commission, meaning they don't get paid unless you buy a house. So you don't want somebody who's just pushing you towards anything. You want somebody to help you find the house that best fits your needs. And that makes sense. Can you go a little bit more into how actual agents get paid? Because I think that's important to know from a financial aspect. If you're going to sign on with an agent and they're they're doing this quote unquote for, for free, right? You're not actually paying them if you're buying the house. The Correct. seller is. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about from a buyer's perspective, like what they need to look out for. Real estate agent gets paid on commission, meaning they get a portion of the purchase price, which varies by state and varies by location. It hovers around six or five or 6% is what the seller pays to have their house sold. And that five or 6% typically gets split in half. So two and a half to 3% to each side of the sale. So the buyer's agent and the seller's agent will split that money. So let's say for the sake of math, 
we have a $100,000 house and the selling agent is getting 5%. So 2.5% for each of them. So that's Mm $2,500 that your buyer's agent will get for showing you around, walking you through the purchase steps and getting you to the closing table so that you can sign the contracts and then you own your new house. And that is, you know, a lot of people, there's this misconception of real estate agents. Oh, all they ever do is is show you houses. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. There's the home inspection and the appraisal and the mortgage and all these other steps that you may not see. There's a lot of dates and deadlines that need to be met. I think that's good to know from a seller's standpoint and from a buyer's standpoint that really, as a buyer, the seller is the one that's paying the commissions. Is there any other type of thing that an agent can earn outside of that normal percentage or is it just... The percentage is it. It's actually a violation of law to have the real estate agent receive money from anybody other than their broker. Mm -hmm. And when you have a contract with an agent, you don't actually have a contract with the agent. You have a contract with their employing broker. So that broker pays your agent. You can't give your broker money. There's not really any way for them to... To make anything outside. Yeah, I was trying to get to the point that basically that they are licensed under a broker and that the money actually flows through the broker to the agent and that's, right. how, they, that's how they get paid. So, so. so there is something called the broker price opinion or a BPO where you ask a broker, can you tell me what you think this house would be worth? That's typically on the sell side, mm-hmm. but even that is, what is that, like $35 or $50 it's, for them yeah, to I write that not, up? I know it's, it's not much. almost whereas, nothing. Whereas these commissions that we're talking about, depending on the purchase price, can be tens of thousands of dollars. If you've got, Absolutely. so it's like $2,500, $3,000 per $100,000. If you're mm-hmm. buying a $500,000 house, there's $15,000 right there. And that's for just your side. half. Yeah, that's the, or well, the agent's half. So yeah, it can be significant and there is definitely an incentive for them to help you buy a house. You want to make sure that they are helping you find your next home, not just buy any house. Exactly. So you're going to go through and you're going to say, these are my wants, my wishes and my needs, right? And that's a lot what I actually do in planning. We look at your goals and we say, these are my needs, right? And then this is what I would like. And then this is my dream. A good agent will tell you, okay, what, is, what do you absolutely need? Well, I need a three-bedroom house or I need a big kitchen or whatever that might be. I need to entertain. And then what would you like? Oh, I'd like a three-car garage. And, and then you tell them your price. Like, this is what I can afford. Not what the bank tells you, right? Yes. No, you don't want what the bank tells you. You want what you are comfortable with, mm-hmm. what you can afford easily. It's what is the most house I need? There is this perception with physicians that they live in a big house because they're rich. But you don't have to live in a big house. If you would rather live in a small house or if a smaller house would fit your needs, why not live there? Absolutely. So it's it's all about getting to the goals and what you really want. It's not driving that Mercedes if that isn't important to you. If you just view a car as a car as transportation to get to and from work, you don't need a $100,000 Mercedes or Porsche. You can be driving the nice Toyota for $20,000. And if a home is more important to you, then you might be spending a little bit more on a home, but it still doesn't mean what the bank is telling you is what you can afford. Right. You You had an interesting story about how the bank will tell you how much you can afford as a physician. They don't take into account the student loan payments? No, they don't. If you're going for a physician loan, it's like a conventional loan, which is 20% down. Let's say you're going for a 30-year mortgage, but the bank will say, hey, because you're a physician, as long as you've got a signed contract and we can verify you're a physician looking at paychecks or whatever it is, it doesn't matter if your student debt was $10,000 or $500,000. We're going to exclude that from your debt to income ratio. 
and we're going to allow you to go based on what your stated income is, or they'll verify it, but basically what your income is as a doctor. There's no PMI, and you can put as little as 5% down. So I, I threw out some jargon there that probably we should probably clarify what Yeah, I was PMI just going to say, PMI is private mortgage insurance. When a bank gives you a loan, they want to make sure they're going to get paid back. And if you don't have 20% down for most types of loans, for a conventional, mm-hmm. for an FHA... There's a couple of other types of loans that don't apply here. If you don't have 20% down, they will charge you an insurance premium, and then they go out and get insurance on your loan to make sure that if you stop paying, they still get paid. They always look out for themselves. They always look out for themselves. So there's a couple of loans. The VA loan comes with a 0%, as low as 0% down, and also has no PMI because the government is guaranteeing that it'll get paid. So that's a nice little perk for a former vet. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any physician former vets it that are listening. Be. You know, that it could be. it's they have doctors in the army too. Absolutely. That might be a nice way to combine those. What other jargon would you throw out? And I threw out a debt to income ratio. Oh, debt to income ratio. Yeah. This is how much debt you have versus how much income you have. And this is really important because you said that they don't include your student loans, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you don't have to pay your student loans. Absolutely. So even if you're getting this student loan forgiveness you still have to make the minimum payments for, you said four years yesterday. I don't know if that's industry standard, if that was specific to one person that or just, just a general. To, to one person, but essentially, even if it's private, doesn't have to be federal, doesn't have to be in the loan forgiveness program, any student debt, they will exclude inside of a physician mortgage or a doctor loan. It's got a couple names. Of course, everything in finance has several names and means the same thing. Meant to confuse, but... Yeah. So let's clarify that a little bit more. Let's say you are bringing in $10,000 a month and your student loan bill is $4,000 a month. You still have to pay that $4,000, even though the bank looked at it as you make $10,000. Well, if you're paying $4,000 in student loans, you only have $6,000 left. So you can't go get a $10,000 a month mortgage payment, which sounds ridiculous. That's like a billion dollar loan. It happens though. But it, yeah, but you can't do that because you won't have any money left over to pay anything else or fund your emergency or, you know, the student loans don't go away just because the banks don't include them. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that you got to look at how many dollars come in and how many dollars go out and what is the task of every dollar coming in. So if you've got $10,000 coming in, in your example, and let's say that you you have uh, no other debt other than student loan debt, the bank is gonna look at you as you have $10,000 to spend, but we all know that you have 6,000 in our example. So don't go out and spend $4,000 on a mortgage payment or $5,000. Even if you're in a high cost of living area, you might have to live in a cheaper area, a smaller house, might be a starter home, might be a significantly smaller starter home, don't overspend because the bank says you can. Absolutely. That is, oh, put an exclamation point behind that. Don't overspend just because the bank says it's okay. The bank is not going to be the one that comes and helps you pay your bills when you can't. Absolutely. They're not your friend, even though they have a nice smile and want to sell you some stuff. They aren't your friend. The person has found a home. They found a realtor. They've identified the area they're going to. So now let's say that they have decided to write an offer. What does that kind of look like, writing an offer, and kind of what, what would take place between the offer and the actual close? You found your agent. Now you need to start looking at houses. So your agent will set you up with email listings. Uh, you know, they'll start off with everything you want. So you need three bedrooms, but you would like 
a three-car garage. So they'll see, are there any three bedrooms with a three-car garage in this price range? Oh, here comes six back. Great, mm-hmm. here are six listings. Do you like any of them? You click through the pictures, you read the description, and you say, hey, this one would look great, or I like all six of them, or I hate all of them. Your agent will tweak your listings. We finally figure out how many listings you're getting. You know, We figure out exactly what we're looking for, and you start going through the listings. You tell your agent, I want to see these nine or these six or whatever. They take you to the property. They walk you around. You need to look through the property. If you like the property, walk through again and look for things you hate. Oh, it doesn't have a bathroom on the first floor. Yeah. First, you want to like the house. Because if you walk in and you're like, wow, I hate this house. You don't need to look for anything else to hate. Close the door and go to the next house. But if you like the house, make sure you really like the house. And Mm -hmm. you just don't think the paint color is pretty or you like the kitchen, but everything else about it is awful. See a house that you really like? Walk outside, walk back in again, and look for things you hate. Oh, this office is too close to the bathroom or the baby's bedroom would be too far away from my bedroom or whatever it is. If you can't live with it before you buy it, you're not going to be able to live with it after you buy it. You're going to hate it and you're going to want to sell it. There is a buyer for every house, but it, some, some houses are really weird. Yeah. So you found a property, you want to make an offer on it. You get together with your agent. Most agents use an online signing, document signing uh, called DocuSign or CTME or there's a couple of other ones, but those are the two big ones. Mm -hmm. You tell your agent how much you want to make an offer for. And if you're not quite sure how much you should make an offer for, you can ask your agent to run the comps or run the, the comparable properties, which is a list of properties that have sold recently that are similar to the property in the same general area. So you want to make sure they're in the same school district, especially if there's differences between school districts. You want to make sure that they've sold recently. It doesn't matter what it sold for a year ago. It matters what it sold for three weeks ago mm-hmm. or even you know a month ago, three months ago. If you're in a really hot market, it's three months. If you're in a, like a more of a lukewarm market, it's, you can go back six months. And if you're in a cold market, you could go back as far as a year. But sometimes you have to go back as far as a year because there isn't anything to look at. So you have your agent run the comps. If all three-bedroom, two-bath houses with a three-car garage in this area are going for $400,000, it isn't a good idea to make an offer for $200,000. Most likely, it's not going to get accepted. Mm -hmm. But does that mean you have to offer four hundred? Maybe you could offer three ninety-five or three seventy-five, or maybe the other ones all had brand new everything, and this one has old carpet and kind of dingy paint or whatever. You want to look at properties that are in similar condition to the one you're buying, or make adjustments because they're in better or worse condition than the one you're buying. You decide on a price with your agent through your agent's guidance. You write the offer up. Here's the price I'm offering. Here's the terms that I think I'm going to get. Presumably, you have spoken to a mortgage lender, a mortgage broker, a Mm -hmm. bank, and you have gotten a pre-approval for the amount of money, the the, the highest amount of money that the bank is willing to lend you. So we're not talking about pre-qualifications where they just kind of glance over and say, oh, yeah, you're pre-qualified for this. You want to get something that says pre-approval where the bank has actually done a more not complete in-depth, but more in-depth review of your financials and said, we actually know you should be able to qualify for a $300,000 loan or whatever it is. Correct. So the pre-qualification, like you said, is just a quick glance. Oh, look, they say they make $100,000 a year. Okay. Based on that, we'd give you a loan for this, Mm -hmm. but they haven't looked at anything. Maybe you say you make a hundred thousand, but you only make 50, or maybe you say you make a hundred, but you have $75,000 
in debt. So they're not going to be so excited to give you a loan you know, once they dig a little deeper. But a pre-approval means they have run your credit. They have looked at your background. They know how much debt you have. They know what your income is. They know what your spouse's income is, if that's applicable. They say, based on this information, if this doesn't change, we will give you a loan for up to this. It is mm-hmm. not a guarantee that you will get a loan for up to X. So you, you do need to realize that you can still not be approved. One of the easiest ways to get your loan not approved is to buy a brand new car right before closing. Mm buy brand new furniture for your brand new house. Don't buy anything from the time you make the offer or right before to from the time you talk to the mortgage lender to the time you close on the house, you sign all the paperwork. Do not make a purchase that you do not absolutely need. Yes, you can buy clothes and food and whatever, but you don't need to buy a brand new wardrobe or take a vacation to Tahiti. Yeah, that's really important to know. Like, don't even apply for more credit cards. Like, don't mess with your credit. Good point. Yes, don't touch your credit score, your credit report, no changes whatsoever until you buy the house. After you buy the house, after you get the mortgage, then go out and buy the car. If that is something that you need, we're not even going to get into the whole, mm-hmm. you don't really need that. You could buy a used car for yeah. 5000 so, Okay. So now we've got pre-approval. We're at the point that we're going to write the offer. We're going to write the offer. So you want to know how much you're going to write it for based on comps, what similar properties Mm -hmm. have sold for in the area. And this is important to what they've sold for, not what they're on the market for. It doesn't matter how much you list your house for. Houses that are selling for $100,000 can still be listed at a million dollars. It doesn't make them worth a million dollars. So you only want properties that have sold, closed for whatever the price. You want to look up the comps for that. You've decided on the property, the price that you want to write the offer for. You've talk to your mortgage broker, you, you write in, there's a place in almost every contact to write in, I want to buy this house, it is contingent upon me getting a loan at 4.5% or whatever mm-hmm. the going rate is. If you can't get a loan except at 10%, maybe that's not acceptable to you, so you can back out of the contract using the mortgage contingency. A contingency is an out for the buyer. The contract will go through if all of these contingencies are met. So there are typically a home inspection contingency, a mortgage contingency, a home appraisal contingency. Sometimes there is a home sale or home close contingency where I'm assuming that this, uh, they're buying their first house, so those last two don't apply. Mm-hmm. So you need to know what mortgage you're getting. You write up the price you're offering. You write up the mortgage information. You definitely want to check the home inspection contingency box because you want to know what you're getting into in this property. And you want to check the mortgage appraisal or the home appraisal box because if your home doesn't appraise, if this home doesn't appraise at the price that you are offering, the bank will not give you a loan and therefore you cannot buy the property. Or you'll have to come up with a difference on the loan. The bank will not actually give you that. They'll say, well, we'll still give you what we want and what we, what we said in, in writing here, but you're going to have to cover up the extra. And if your house comes in at $400,000 purchase price and the appraisal comes in at three ninety, dollars guess who's footing the $10,000 that's different? You've got to bring $10,000 to the closing or you can't buy the house. In addition to the down payment that you're making, Mm -hmm. in addition to all of the costs associated with buying a house, Mm -hmm. and you can ask the seller to reduce the price to the appraisal price. Mm -hmm. And they have the right to do that. They have the right to walk away and say, no, thank you. They have the right to ask you, no, I'm not going to do that. You can bring more money to closing or you can walk away. And if you remove your contingencies, all of them, then your deposit goes hard, which means that it's non-refundable. Yes. During all this time... 
they can actually, if, if a contingency for mortgage or, or appraisal doesn't go through, they can get their money back. Yes. And we didn't talk about this yet. This is called earnest money. And mm-hmm. this is an amount of money that you give to the seller to show your dedication to the sale. Because it's one thing to just put a property under contract and walk away and you don't have any money at risk. And now the seller has had their house on the market. It's been under contract. They haven't been able to accept any other contracts. And now the contract fell through. So it's not really fair to them. I don't know when they started the concept of earnest money, but now it is standard in every state to give earnest money, which is around 1% of the purchase price. You write a check to the title company or the closing attorney or the real estate agent. You do not write a check to the seller themselves because that not, that's not their money. It's your money that they are holding. So yes, after you have met all of your contingencies, you release them during the course of the contract, your earnest money goes hard and you cannot get it back. Mm -hmm. So you have a home inspect. The first contingency that comes up is a home inspection contingency. You want to know the condition of the property before you buy it. So you hire a licensed home inspector. And if this is your first property, do not skip this step, exclamation point. This is so important because if you are buying your first property, you don't know what a broken foundation looks like. Water spots on the ceiling, you probably know what that is, but do you know how serious that is? Do you know that the pipes work? Do they even have pipes? Copper theft is huge right Mm -hmm. now. That's when people come in and steal all the copper piping in your walls and then you turn on the water and it sprays everywhere. Or, you know, let's not even get into that, but you want to know the condition of the home as it is currently right now. And a home inspection is not a guarantee that the house will not have any problems ever. But the home inspector comes in and they say, oh, look, that furnace is 12 years old. A furnace typically goes for 13 to 20 years. So it's 12 years old. It's getting up in age, but it should be good. It's in good condition now. The air conditioner is 27 years old, so you're going to need to replace that soon. You want to know about this so you can either ask the seller to remedy the problem, ask them to lower the price, ask them to split the difference. There's a lot of different ways you can handle that, but you want to know what you're getting into before you get into it. I wouldn't skip this step even if it was your 30th purchase. No, I wouldn't either, but I want to make sure that they know we're talking about buying your first house. Do not skip this step. And this is going to cost you between, you know, four and eight hundred dollars, depending on what sort of tests you're doing. In my state of Colorado, I am responsible as the homeowner from the house to the middle of the street for the sewer pipe. Mm -hmm. I need a sewer inspection. I recommend all my clients get a sewer inspection because that is a $7,000 fix. That's a big bill. $7,000 plus. You can, you know, it's not always $7,000, but keep that in your head. Mm -hmm. You didn't pay $400 or $800 for the home inspection, and now you have a a $7,000 bill to fix the sewer pipe that you didn't know was broken. But if you had found it before you bought the house, you could have asked the sellers to fix it, or you could have split the difference, and now you've got a $3,500 bill instead of a $7,000 bill. So you definitely want to know the condition of the home and make sure that you are comfortable buying the home in that condition before you move on. Yeah, and a home inspector is going to basically look through, and let's just say it's something with the AC or uh, it doesn't get cool enough, or there could be a whole number of issues. They're going to tell you to have a licensed, let's say, electrician because something doesn't work, or a plumber to come out because this pipe looks funny to them. They're not going to tell you exactly what it is. They're not going to guarantee anything that they might have missed in the walls, but it's something to protect you to say, Someone came in who's intelligent and licensed and said, this needs to be addressed. So then that that makes sense. So when 
they say, hey, you need to have your AC checked out by an actual licensed AC guy, that's going to be another additional cost, but probably going to be worth the money spent to find out if you're going to have to replace the whole AC or... Exactly. And an inspection is not nearly as expensive as not knowing that it needs to be fixed, buying the house at full price and discovering later there's a $10,000 bill. Mm -hmm. I want to go back a minute and say, go to the inspection. Whatever you do, Mm -hmm. buying the house, you want to attend the inspection and walk around with the inspector and listen to them when they talk. Oh, look, this light switch doesn't work. Oh, okay. Is that a big fix? Well, not really. It's probably a couple of dollars. Your your home inspector is not going to give you a hard and fast quote on how much it's going to cost to fix something, but they are familiar enough with construction concepts that they will know, oh, that's a $10 fix or, oh, no, that's a $10,000 mm-hmm. fix. And you want to ask them when your home inspector is there, they are there. They're in the moment, they're in the house and they can explain everything. As soon as they walk out the door, they forget your house. Because yeah. they're in houses all day, every day. They don't remember about that. Yeah, they don't remember about that light switch that one time three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So you want to be there. You want to walk around with them. And you want to ask questions until you understand what they're saying. Amazing actual advice. That is awesome. So now we've gone through this. And we know that the appraisal is going to come through the bank. If you're getting a loan, the bank is going to require it. So we don't have to go too much in detail with that. But so we've got the inspection. Let's say everything looks groovy from there. The appraisals come in. Everything looks legit. Now we're getting ready to close. What's kind of that last final process there? Your bank has approved your loan and you are closing on Tuesday. You want to schedule closing closer to the beginning of the week than the end of the week. You do not want a four o'clock on Friday closing because what if something happens? Your bank is closed. They're not going to open up until Monday and you were planning on moving in this whole weekend and now you can't. So you definitely want to schedule it like the beginning of the week closing. You want to talk to your closing company. In my state, we use title companies to handle the closing. Some states use attorneys. You want to talk to whoever is performing the closing and ask them, do I send you a wire? Can I bring a cashier's check? What identification do you want me to bring with me when I come to the closing? What do I need to know? I've never done this before. What do I need? And we haven't even talked about title insurance yet. No. (laughs) There's so many things. There's so many things involved. And that's that's one of the reasons why we're doing this show specifically on buying a first house. Because it is something that every physician always asks is, you know, I'm ready to buy. I want to buy. And I have no idea on the process. So this is one of the reasons why we go through this whole thing. So let's just jump real quick back to title insurance and then kind of pick up where we were. Okay. So title insurance is an insurance policy against past events. Most insurance insures you for against future events. Like, oh, I have health insurance because I might get sick. I have title insurance to make sure that nobody who has ever owned the house before is going to come back and tell me that it's their house going to try and take possession of the house because the deed was misrecorded or somebody forged their name or whatever. You want to ensure that nothing has ever happened to the house. The chain of title is clean. So we're going to pretend for this discussion because that's a whole nother rabbit hole you can go down. Let's just say the title company comes back great. The title company will send you a policy that says, here's what we'll cover. Here's what we're going to exclude. And you want to read through that. You're not going to understand it call up the title company, ask them specifically, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Until you understand it. Don't feel stupid. 
I was talking to a title company representative the other day and I said, oh, I feel like I should know this. She said, I had to ask what forms I was sending you. I had to ask somebody else to double check to make sure what forms I've been, I was sending you was correct. And I've been doing this for 20 years. If you have a question, ask, because I want you to know what you're getting into. I want you to know what's being excluded from the title policy, etc. Call up the title company when you get that email because it is written in something you will never understand. This is Mindy at Bigger Pockets who deals in real estate all day every day and there's some things that even she doesn't understand and when she calls title that they don't even understand so as a physician you're not expected to know all of this stuff so it's it's really important to understand ask questions there's no such thing as a stupid question that is a really 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 good point yeah you're not expected to understand this so don't pretend that you do just ask the questions so okay so your title policy came back and now you're getting ready to close Mm -hmm. you want to know how you were getting your down payment funds to the closing company. I had a client, I was helping them buy their house and the lender called or the title closer called me up and she said, I haven't received their funds. And the closing was the next day. And I said, Oh my goodness, the bank is, I've worked with this bank a bunch of times. They're supposed to be really good. Let me call them. She said, no, no, I've got their funds. I don't have the wire from the buyer. And I said, well, they're just going to bring a cashier's check tomorrow. She said, no, we don't accept cashier's checks over $1,000 because there's so much fraud. It's very Mm -hmm. easy to forge a cashier's check. So now we were scrambling. And she had actually, this was my mistake. This was 100% my mistake. I didn't read her instructions because I've done this before. Mm -hmm. Your title company will give you instructions, read every word, call them up and ask questions if you don't understand because if my buyer was able to get a wire sent out that day, but if she had not been, closing would have been postponed. And you definitely want to double check your wire instructions. Here's another fun little story. My friend Shannon bought a house and she was about ready to close and she finally gets the instructions from the title company. She wakes up the next morning, double checks her email for some reason and sees another email sent from the title company that says, oops, we gave you the wrong number. Sorry, here's the real number. And she's like, oh, thank God I saw this. Boy, that would have really screwed it up. Her title company's email was broken into and they sent her real instructions and then somebody broke into the email account and sent her fake instructions. So her wire didn't go to the title company. It went to the scammer's account. That's scary. That's very scary. And that is happening more and more and more. I just got notice on the Bigger Pockets forum. Somebody posted the California Association of Realtors now has an advisory that you must sign for every real estate transaction that says, I am aware of wire transfer fraud. I have double checked my numbers and I know that the, I'm sending it to the right place or something like that. I didn't read it because I'm not in California. So is is the best thing to do for them to call title and verify the instructions now? The best thing for you to do is to walk into the title company and get them in your hand and call your bank or walk them over to your bank or whatever. But the second best is to ask them when you first discover what the title company is, call up the title company with the phone number that you get, not a phone number that's been emailed to you from Mm -hmm. the title company. You go find that phone number and you call them up and you say, I need the wire instructions. Please email them to me and then I will call you back to confirm. Mm -hmm. You call them back to confirm. You read the numbers. They will confirm them. And then you ask them, will these numbers change before closing? They won't. Their bank account is the same one they opened up 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. So these instructions will not change. It doesn't matter what email you get those instructions won't change. You can lose all your money 
my friend Shannon actually got scammed by the dumbest scammer on earth who left the funds in the account long enough that they were seized. Like she had discovered this. So they were seized back from the bank and there, it's, wow, it wasn't a lucky. pretty, she got so lucky that never happens ever. I have to, I have to clarify yeah. that never will happen again. If you get scammed, you're out the money, but you definitely want to double check. And then you call up your bank and you say, I'm going to wire, I'm going to email you these instructions. Mm-hmm. And then you need to call me to verify or I will call you to verify, but you want to verify them over the phone and say, these will not change. It doesn't matter what I send you because it's gone in an instant. And you're going to be, you'll be another statistic and you'll lose a bunch of money and you're going to have a horrible real estate experience, which no one wants. And there's so much information and great information and real estate is a really good investment tool for you to use. Yes, it is. And, but it'll, Shannon is going to sell this house. There's a, there's a lot of problems with poor Shannon's story, but she's so, there's, there's such a bad taste in her mouth with real estate because of this one transaction. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is a really negative part of the story, but it it really is. It'll, it'll break your heart when you lose $50,000 that you can't get back and Mm -hmm. you were saving that for a year or you know, maybe not as a physician, but yeah. So now, um, so now let's just get get so you've got your more positive here. So now the wire's gone. You've talked to your title, your closing person. You've got all the documents you want. You are going to the closing table. They'll tell you we're going to close at nine. So you get there at nine o'clock in the morning. You give them your identification. So they know that you are the one signing the notes and then you start signing. And as the buyer, you sign your name like 11,000 times, maybe more. You sign the mortgage papers, you sign the title work, you sign the deed, you sign the promissory note, you sign, you sign, you sign. It's it's like oh, an inch thick of papers. At least 100 disclosures and on everything. The mortgage or the, the closing person will describe the document to you. They've done this 100,000 times. This is the mortgage document. This is where you say you will pay back the money. So you sign your name and then they show you the next document. This is where you say that this is the actual property. This is you verifying. This is your information. This is this and this. This is you saying, if we made a mistake, you will allow us to fix it and everything will be fine. And you sign your name 11,000 times and then you are done. Now you are a homeowner. Now you are a homeowner. And that probably is the most painful process other than actually qualifying for the loan and the bank actually verifying everything because... They your hand ask cramps up. Everything. But yes, your hand will cramp <laughs> and it will be long and, and, and that closing signing process does take a while, but it's well worth it in the end if, if you have a home that, uh, that you really enjoy. It really is well worth it. I live in the best house that I've ever lived in. I've been there four years and my husband will, will say things like, oh, well, maybe we should think about selling. I'm like, no. I'm not moving ever again. I want to I want to live here. I like my house. But one thing that we didn't talk about is occupancy. Yes. In this current market in many of the markets right now are very very hot and it's difficult for sellers to become buyers and find another property. It's it would be difficult for you to find this property. So when you find it, your seller may ask to rent back the property after closing. This is called a post-occupancy closing agreement. And basically you're renting the house back to them. They're going to pay you money every week or month that they're there, or they don't need to buy that back. They don't need to rent it back from you. And you take possession at closing, which means they hand you the keys. They hand you the garage door openers. They hand you, you know, if there's any codes on the garage door side, like the side of the garage door, you want to know the codes. You want to know everything that you need to get into the house and any codes or any locks or any keys or any 
openers of any kind you want to get from them at the closing. You don't want them to have anything else. And then the first thing you do when you go to your new house is change all the locks and Absolutely. change all the codes because change everything. You never know who you're buying from, and not everybody's honest, which is sad. But very sad. Yeah, if you're buying this expensive house, you're most likely not buying from a scammer. But again, you don't know who knows that code. They have kids. They tell their neighbor's friend the code. You want to change it so nobody can get into your house. Absolutely. And now it's time for the curbside consult. Just to wrap it up here, uh, at the end of all my shows, I do what's called a curbside consult, which I ask one specific question that's either written in or something that I've been asked a lot. Okay. And so one of the things that I've been asked a lot is, if you were to select a cheaper home in a nicer area, when and how much should you do remodeled and how much should the rehabs be, if that's even something you should do? If you have a house, let's go back to our $300,000 priced house in a $400,000 neighborhood, you want that house to be on par with the rest of the neighborhood. So if everybody in the neighborhood has granite countertops and stainless steel appliances and you know a jacuzzi in the backyard and your house has laminate countertops and white cabinets or white appliances and no jacuzzi, you want to bring it up to the same level. It is going to get you more. It's called forced appreciation. You are forcing the price to go up when you make it on par with the rest of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not a $400,000 house. Maybe it's only a $375,000 house. But granite countertops aren't that expensive, five or $10,000. Uh, new appliances, you know, $5,000. There you've just put, let's say, $15,000 in, and now your house is worth $75,000 more, $50,000 more. Multiple. It's it's a nice multiple and you want to do things that are on par with the neighborhood, not things that are weird. Mm -hmm. So if the entire neighborhood has laminate countertops, having granite countertops can be nice, but you can't expect people to pay for that when nobody else in the neighborhood, that's, that's not your competition. Yeah. So, so you're talking about over improving. Yes. You do not want to over improve a house but again, if you buy the $300,000 house in the $400,000 neighborhood, it's going to be difficult to over-improve. Yeah, it would cost a lot of money to over-improve that, but yeah. It would cost a lot, but it would also be very difficult because you've got that $100,000 gap to move in. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. How can people find out more about you and figure out what you're doing and keep up with you? I am the community manager at biggerpockets.com. So I am all over the website. I am on their YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpockets. I am on at biggerpockets on Twitter, facebook.com slash biggerpockets, or on the site biggerpockets.com. We have a forum, a blog, and a podcast where we talk about real estate and real estate investing, and we teach you the right way to do it. We've already gone to the school of hard knocks. You don't need to go there too. You can just learn from our mistakes. It's an amazing place. It's where I get a lot of information and get to kind of geek out over real estate. So I definitely suggest you guys head there to biggerpockets.com. And thank you, Mindy, so much for being here and for FinCon for letting me record at the booth. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. And I will see you at FinCon. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. Wow. That was a fun episode. I had so much fun recording and talking with Mindy on that. Real estate's uh, a secret passion of mine. And while I know that I've bought and sold a few houses uh, here and there, and I know that uh, Mindy has obviously done the same as she's an expert at it, I really hope that those of you listening that have never bought a home uh, now have some more insight and are more educated in what's coming up when you do decide to purchase your first home. It really isn't that scary, but there are a lot of things that go into it. 
And so I hope that listening to this conversation really sheds some insights for you and really helps you become familiar or a little bit, at least a little more familiar with the process of what it's like to buy your first home. So thank you again for listening. The next couple of weeks are going to be extremely exciting. This is launch week of the Financial Residency Podcast. But upcoming, we've got some really killer shows. Uh, we're going to be talking with Travis Hornsby from studentloanplanner.com. And we're going to be talking with Passive Income MD from PassiveIncomeMD.com, as well as Bo from FutureProofMD. So I really think you guys are going to get a lot out of the upcoming episodes. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. And thank you so much for joining me in launch week of Financial Residency. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.